Thanks for tuning in to the Archive, brought to you by the Mail Tribune. I'm Alyssa Corman, and I'll be sharing the news with you from 100 years ago in the splendid city of Medford, and Jackson County at large, in 1918. Oh boy! Do I have some great stories for you today! This week, it seemed oddities abounded. The government is making changes to protect our Sammies. A neighboring city was not very neighborly, and yet another mystery appeared in the skies. Plus, as promised, I've got an update for you on the chief of police position. I hope you're as interested to hear all these stories, and of course a few more, as I am to tell you about them. So let's get to it! William Lee, the forest ranger stationed in the Huckleberry Mountain District, who was a visitor in the city today, says that many thousands of gallons of huckleberries are going to waste on the mountain, although hundreds of persons from Jackson and Klamath counties have been picking for a week or two. With all those berries ripe for the picking, perhaps our young boys will get their share, because the Boy Scouts are soon to take an outing. Scoutmasters Janie and Terrell will take their troops for a summer hike to Squaw Lake Friday morning, the 16th, for a week's camping and instruction in scout lore. The number going at this time will be smaller than otherwise, owing to the fact that so many of the scouts are employed in the orchards. These summer hikes and camps are of great value and hugely enjoyed. Each of the boys goes fully equipped for individual cooking, and considerable time will be given to instruction in the things for which scout craft stands. Now, as I just mentioned, many boys will have to miss the outing because they are doing their bit by helping out in the orchards. But they are not the only ones getting to work. Contrary to the belief of several orchardists of the valley at the beginning of the pear season, the many women and girls at work in the orchards are making good at pear picking, according to a statement made by M.S. James, the Federal Employment Bureau agent this morning. 90% of the pears are being picked by women and girls, 100 of who are at work in the orchards this week. Mr. James says that he has a long waiting list of other women and girls anxious to get to orchard work. The heavy mail from France this week, bringing long delayed letters, gladdened the relatives and friends of many Metford boys over there. Relatives of a number of the boys received from three to six letters on the same day. These letters also told of long-delayed mail from home having arrived in France. Leo Williams, for instance, whose parents received three letters from him Thursday, wrote that he had just received 14 letters in one day from relatives and friends from here. Speaking of our boys over there, the government has just made some curious yet necessary changes, and it seems that secrecy is to veil all future summons to Army service. Public farewells at the depot to draft contingents leaving the city are a thing of the past, and hereafter the drafted men will depart from Metford quietly and without the time of their going or even their names being known until after the train has departed. 
This is in accordance with orders recently received by the County Draft Board from the General's Office. The government's policy now is to surround the draft movements in secrecy. No longer will the various draft calls be published in advance. Not the names or destinations of the men selected to fill these calls. The drafted men themselves will not know where they are bound for until they are aboard the train. They will merely be notified to report to the draft board on a certain date, it is said, but will be given plenty of time to bid farewell to relatives and friends. The secrecy now to be thrown about draft calls and contingents is said to be for the protection of the men themselves, lest some pro-German sympathizer or crazy IWW member, knowing the train and destination of a contingent, might wreck the train. As I told you last week, the city council was going to decide on the replacement for J.T. Hitson, the previous chief of police, and, well, it looks like night policeman Timothy has been named chief of police, although he is not yet confirmed. Although George O. Timothy was appointed as chief of police by Mayor Gates last night, and his appointment is favored by the majority of the councilmen, and, as the mayor states, by the businessmen and 90% of the people of Medford, the council failed to confirm the appointment last night due to the opposition of Dr. Emmons, the failure of Dr. Keene to vote, and the absence of councilmen Hargrave and Earl Gaddis from the city. The charter provides that the appointment must be confirmed by a majority of the council. Nevertheless, Timothy is acting chief of police and the head of the police department and will continue in that capacity until his appointment is confirmed, which will probably be at the next council meeting in two weeks. As Councilman Gaddis and Hargrave are known to be heartily in favor of his appointment, there seems to be no doubt of the confirmation. The opposition of Dr. Emmons came as a surprise as the announced intention of Mayor Gates several days ago to appoint Timothy seemed to meet with general commendation throughout the city. Dr. Emmons himself admitted the good character, faithfulness, and general efficiency of Timothy as a policeman, but asserted that, in his opinion, he was of too excitable temperament and lacked proper judgment. Mayor Gates and Councilman Davis and Karkin held to the contrary and thought Timothy ideal chief of police timber, as shown by his conduct as a policeman during his service. Dr. King did not oppose the appointment of Timothy and added words of praise for him as a policeman, but declared that he was opposed to the city having any police force at all, as long as the streets of Medford were ran by the county motorcycle cop. He said that motorcycle cop McDonald had been running the streets of the city in a high-handed manner, bulldozing car owners and the like, and even dictated to the police force. As long as Medford is policed and run by the sheriff's office, said Keene, I see no need of the expense of keeping up a police force in the city. Dr. Keene has been sorely disgruntled and seeing things of a carmine hue ever since his arrest some time ago by McDonald on the charge of speeding, for which he was fined $13.60 in Justice Taylor's court. Misters Karkin and Davis made the statement that the mayor alone was responsible for law and order in the city, 
and that it would be unfair of the council to tie his hands or block his appointment. Dr. Emmons, after again explaining that he had no personal motive in opposing the appointment of Timothy, and in view of the fact that the mayor and others favored him, said he would not oppose the proposed appointment. The mayor then formally announced the appointment of Timothy as chief of police and W.W. Bridget as night patrolman on the force. Mr. Karkin and Davis voted to confirm both appointments. Dr. Emmons, while voting to confirm Bridget's appointment, refused to vote at all on the chief of police appointment, while Dr. Keene refused to vote on either appointment. Mr. Bridget, the new policeman, who was practically the only candidate for the appointment, has been located in the city for some time and formerly resided in Albany. His character and ability were testified to by bankers and businessmen of Albany. I know I've been talking a lot about the sugar situation these past few weeks, but folks, it is your patriotic duty to do as your government demands. Just this week, a card system for limiting use of sugar has been adopted. A card system for limiting sugar purchases to two pounds a person per month has been adopted by the Food Administration. Each family will have one sugar card on file with the dealer. According to the new rules which are being put into effect in Jackson County by Food Controller Folger, every purchase will be recorded on this card, which will contain data on the sugar purchase to date and a pledge not to break the rules of the Food Administration. The cards will be filed with the Food Administrator, who will check them over to provide against duplications. The new restrictions were made following complaints from retail dealers that many were repeating purchases and were buying at different stores. A catechism summary of the sugar situation has been prepared to inform the public of the seriousness of this situation. I wish to emphasize that any family having on hand sugar in excess of their needs for canning should return this to the dealer, said Mr. Folger in speaking of the new rules. This will assist the Food Administration in arranging a fair and equitable distribution of existing supplies. The Catechism follows. What is sugar hoarding? It is having on hand more than is needed for a reasonable length of time. You should not fail to return any unused sugar purchased for canning purposes. May a household have more than a month's supply of sugar on hand? This is not justifiable, except in extreme cases, where there are not stores available for purchase, and it should be done only upon advice of the Federal Food Administrator or his deputy. What are some of the civil effects of hoarding? Well, it throws the distribution system out of joint. It raises prices. It imposes a heavier burden upon those already doing their utmost. It results in waste where there are no proper facilities for storage. And chiefly, it is dishonest. What is the moral wrong of hoarding? It is selfish, cowardly, and unpatriotic. It is, in effect, taking unto oneself special privileges at a time when all Americans should be on the same footing, share and share alike. Is there any punishment for hoarders? Yes. The Food Control Act provides fines of not more than $5,000 and imprisonment for hoarding by dealers, manufacturers, 
and householders. Being a good neighbor is always important, but perhaps never more so than in times like these. However, it seems that some people seem to have forgotten that. Would you believe that Ashland has fined the Medford Fire Chief $5? The news has just leaked out that J.W. Lawton, Chief of Medford's Fire Department, was arrested in Ashland and fined $5 early in July for not having a state license on the department runabout car he uses in his duties. And ever since, the Medford City officials have been wondering if a big fire broke out in Ashland and the department of this city was called on for aid, whether the Medford fire apparatus would be permitted to enter Ashland without having a state license for each piece of apparatus. The unneighborly act of the Ashland police officials has aroused much unfavorable comment in official circles in Medford. It was on a Sunday afternoon that the arrest was made, Chief Lawton having driven over to that city to enjoy an hour or two in the park. It had never occurred to the chief or any other city official that the fire department apparatus should have a state auto license. In fact, the question probably never came up anywhere in the state until this Ashland episode. When an Ashland policeman sought out Chief Lawton and asked if he was the driver of the car, the chief explained who he was, where the car belonged, and so forth, and stated that, considering the friendly relations between the two neighboring cities, it hardly seemed proper to him that he should be arrested for not having licenses for the piece of apparatus. The policeman then called up the Ashland chief of police at the latter's home and put the matter up to him. The police chief refused to come downtown, but told the policeman the matter was purely up to the police judge. The matter finally ended by the Ashland police judge fining Chief Lawton $5. The chief frankly admitted that he was off duty for a few hours, made a simple explanation, and paid the fine. For some time afterwards, it was supposed that the fine might be remitted, but up to date, Ashland still has the $5. Chief of Police Timothy, who is 66 years old, contemplated spending a few hours in the Ashland Park in the near future, but now fears he may be pinched there for not having a draft card. My last story for you is most exciting. You see, earlier this week, a ball of fire dropped from the sky at Central Point. Yes, a real flaming ball of fire. Residents and visitors in Central Point and vicinity who were not frightened Monday night, August 13th, over seeing a queer acting light in the sky, felt at least a little bit creepy. There has been much comment since over what was seen, and many exaggerations are in circulation. It was about 9.30 at night when a streak of fire, at first thought to be a meteor, was seen in the air about three miles west of Central Point. Then, the streak seemed to split in two, part of it ascending upwards out of sight, and the other part drifting downward until it reached the earth in a yard on the outskirts of Central Point. Among those who witnessed the strange sight were Ernest McKee of Hubbard Brothers Store in this city, and Mr. Nelson, traveling agent of the John Deere Plow Company. 
They report that some members of a threshing crew returned that night from Central Point and stated that the shooting star had fallen in a yard in the outskirts of Central Point and proved to be a partially burned piece of rope. The general impression now seems to be that someone sent up a kite and before starting it heavenward had set fire to it. Then, on reaching a great height, the burning kite kept on going and the strand of rope burned off from the kite, descended. But the occurrence caused many wild stories to be started, including the resurrection of that old peaceable aeroplane that was supposed to lurk in the country back of Roxy Ann last spring. It is said that one Central Point woman claimed that she was watching the burning light in the sky through strong field glasses, and not only distinctly saw the wings of an aeroplane, but she saw a bomb drop from it. Well, folks, that's all I've got for you this week. Thanks for listening. Remember, these news stories have been brought to you by the Mail Tribune, a weekly series featuring news items that were drawn from the archives of the Mail Tribune from 100 years ago. You can find more stories like this in the Mail Tribune 100 column in the newspaper or online at mailtribune.com. We also have a whole slew of other podcasts on a wide variety of topics. Believe me, you'll sure want to check them out. And also, be sure to follow us. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, and YouTube. If you like this podcast or have something you'd like to share with me, let me know in the comments or on Facebook. I would love to hear from you. Have a swell day and check back next week for more stories from the Archive.